Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. I'm so pleased to introduce Dr. Anthony Riley as our guest on today's podcast. Dr. Riley is a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at American University in Washington, D.C., where he also serves as the director of the Psychopharmacology Laboratory and is a very active member of the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior. Dr. Riley's areas of research expertise include the neural and behavioral mechanism of drug abuse, chronic drug administration, drug interactions, including interactions of diet and drugs, as well as the neurotoxic effects of drugs on the brain and behavior. Dr. Riley is a world-renowned scientist and scholar who has authored or co-authored 230 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters. In addition to his impressive record of scientific achievement, Dr. Riley has been recognized as an exceptionally talented teacher. He has won numerous university-wide awards for teaching at American University, and he was named DC Professor of the Year by Council for Advancement and Support of Education and the Carnegie Foundation. On a more personal note, Dr. Riley has been my esteemed colleague at EU for many years. Dr. Riley, who I will now refer to as Tony, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Terry. So I think where I'd like to start is perhaps you can give our audience just a, a kind of an overview of the research you do in your laboratory and including what you consider some of your most uh, impactful findings. Well, basically my work is looking at animal models of drug addiction. And so uh, I'm interested in and the uh, factors that uh, not only induce drug intake, but uh, escalate drug intake. And I do that uh, with animal models, primarily rats and mice, just rodents. And in that assessment, I'm really interested in a, a variety of factors that impact uh, drug use and abuse. And, and one that you, you just described a couple, of uh, one of which is, to, to us is uh, drug interactions, as well as drug history, uh, sex, strain, um, uh, age, things such as that. Uh, so what we primarily do with that is we, we manipulate these, these uh, variables and assess their effects on drug intake. And as, as you know, uh, lots of the work that we've done and others have done have shown that all those, uh, all those factors tremendously affect the likelihood of use and abuse in drugs. So we do a lot of that. At the same time, we look at uh, uh, biological mechanisms underlying or mediating these drug effects and the factors that impact it. And we do that on the reward side, as well as on the uh, adverse or toxicity side. One thing you mentioned that we play with is neurotoxicity. And so a number of the compounds we play with, including new psychostimulants, the synthetic cathinones, produce uh, profound neurotoxicity, primarily on dopamine systems and the motor systems in the brain and the reward systems. 
and they interact with a host of other drugs in doing that. When you say, uh, what are synthetic cathinols? Well, uh, synthetic cathinols, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that you ask that. Uh, most people tend to think of drugs as being plant-based, uh, opium, marijuana, cocaine, things such as that, and they are. Uh, but many drugs, and most of the drugs that are on the scene now are purely synthetic. Uh, they're analogs of, of some of these other compounds. For example, amphetamine is a synthetic compound. There's no plant for amphetamine. But uh, there are compounds that are similar to it, and one of which is something called the synthetic cathinones. And these compounds, I don't want to get too in the weeds with this, but uh, are beta-ketone analogs of amphetamine. They're just simply derivatives of amphetamine and derivatives of cathinone. They come from plants. The original one came from a plant, which is called cat plant. But almost all the ones we are seeing now coming into the U.S. are completely synthetic. They're made in laboratories. And are you saying that those are, that the synthetic drugs are worse for the brain? Is that what I understand? I'm trying to translate into layperson's terms. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say they're worse. Some of them are certainly worse. Uh, some of the compounds we're playing with, one of the compounds called MDPV and alpha-PVP, there's their initials primarily, are anywhere from... 10 to 20, some people report 50 times more potent than cocaine. And some of the, anal uh, some of the synthetic analogs for the, uh, for the opiates, uh, fentanyl, oxycodone, oxycontin, these types of compounds can be up 100 times more potent than heroin. So these compounds are synthetic. People who make them know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they have clandestine labs, and these labs are producing them faster than we can study them and somewhat faster than we can regulate them. And they're, they're quite potent. So their differences is not in where they work in the brain. They work in the same areas as these plant-based compounds, uh, opium or, or cocaine, but they are much more potent at the receptor. Uh, and so they, have, they produce larger effects, more profound effects, sometimes longer duration effects than what we originally saw uh, with the plant-based compounds. And can you explain sort of in layperson's terms what happens to the brain as a result of these drugs? Now, I, I can certainly try uh, and understand that whatever I say is, being, is through my lens and not through other people's lens. Depending upon what you're interested in the brain, you're going to be looking in different areas, different neurochemicals, uh, different effects. Uh, my major interests are twofold. Uh, one is the biological substrates of these drugs. Where do they work in the brain to produce their reinforcing or rewarding effects? And the other side of the coin is where they work in the brain to produce adverse effects. So I'll just briefly talk about the rewarding effects. There is an area in the brain, it's called the mesolimbic and mesocortical system. And this area in the brain seems to mediate natural rewarding effects of, say, food, water, sex, uh, parental behavior, temperature. Th these, these things are evolutionary there, and they served a purpose in animals that had these circuits, and you see them in all animals. Those animals do these behaviors, and they're reinforced by these behaviors, so they keep doing the be these behaviors. If you don't eat, you go extinct pretty quickly. Drugs simply uh, are working on the same biological system that natural reward works on. And so when someone takes opium or someone takes cocaine or someone drinks alcohol, I read a report yesterday showing the same things happening with vape nicotine, they activate these same systems in general. And it's mediated by dopamine. And dopamine, if you can actually train animals to self-administer dopamine directly, you can actually train animals to bar press to get optogenetic activation of dopaminergic circuits. So this circuit is, in fact, a reward circuit. 
uh, almost all the compounds that we play with in terms of rewarding effects of drugs act on this system, albeit by different mechanisms. Opiates work at opiate receptors. Alcohol works at a range of receptors. Cocaine works at a reuptake inhibitor. So all of them are doing the same thing by acting, uh, doing different things to activate the, the eventual common dopaminergic uh, release. So dopamine is not a drug itself, is it? Uh, dopamine is not a drug, uh, although if you look at dopamine structurally, it looks very similar to amphetamine. Uh, amphetamine is a compound that looks that, that when you take it, uh, it actually gets taken up by the dopamine transporter into the brain, into the neuron, and actually displaces dopamine from its vesicles. So the transporter sees amphetamine and dopamine pretty much the same compound. Wow. So that's the, that's the story about why people like drugs, but what are the harmful effects on the brain that you study? Oh, that's, that's a great question. We're looking primarily, and, and, and Terry knows this quite well because Terry and I work together, is that we not only are looking at what is kind of the incentive for using drugs or the reinforcing effects of drugs, but we're also asking how drug effects or drug intake is ameliorated or modulated by their adversive effects because almost all these compounds have aversive effects. People talk about heroin use. The first time people use heroin, the first time, couple of times people use heroin, it produces uh, profound vomiting and people get very sick. And it's oftentimes referred to as a good sick uh, because you're also getting the rewarding effects of the drug. So these effects occur concurrently, often at the same dose uh, in the same individual. And so what happens is some of those aversive effects uh, uh, adapt very quickly. And so the vomiting goes away very quickly and the nausea goes away very quickly and you have the rewarding effects. Uh, cocaine produces pretty much profound anxiety. Uh, uh, cigarettes and nicotine uh, produce uh, profound dizziness. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, there's work by DeFranzi et al. showing that uh, the, one of the best predictors of substance use with nicotine is being dizzy that first experience. And those that can tolerate that dizziness go on to substance abuse that. Those that don't, don't continue taking the drug. Uh, same thing with alcohol. Uh, many people drink alcohol initially and get uh, sick from it or disoriented or a, a blackout, whatever the case may be, and they don't use it again. It's a high predictor of subsequent use as your initial reaction to the drug. If it's aversive, you tend not to do it anymore. We're studying uh, in addition to general aversive effects, we're also looking at neurotoxicity of the striatal system, which is a motor system in the brain. You're going and, to have to put that in layperson's terms. Uh, uh, okay, I'll do my best here. Uh, there's an area of the brain called the basal ganglia, and the basal ganglia has input from the midbrain area called the substantia nigra up to an area called the corpus striatum. It's all called the basal ganglia. And the, the audience for this probably knows this in relationship to Parkinson's disease. Uh, when individuals have Parkinson's disease, they tend to have compromising of this area or deterioration of the substantia nigra. And so the pathway actually deteriorates. And the only way to treat that is, and, and that system's mediated by dopamine. Is that the system that, I remember the term frozen addict? That's exactly the system, and yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll mention that in a second, actually. This system deteriorates, and we don't know why. Uh, some people talk about it as in terms of genetic mod modulation. Some people talk about it in terms of viral effects. Uh, and this, this system deteriorates, and the only way initially to treat this 
is to give dopamine. Well, you can't give dopamine because it won't get into the brain. But L-dopa, its precursor, does go into the brain. And L-dopa does, in fact, ameliorate the effects of Parkinson's disease. The only problem is it doesn't stop the progression of the disease, and so the disease continues to get worse, and you can't treat it that way. And, and Terry, in relationship to the frozen addicts, uh, that was a compound called MPTP, and that was a, a compound that uh, has been shown to be a byproduct or a metabolite of meperidine, which is an opiate, and it actually uh, got, gets into dopamine cells and creates free radicals and oxidizes, and it uh, destroys the cells. So people with that actually showed Parkinson's disease. And the only way to treat them was to do fetal transplant of the, of the substantia nigra, which was quite interesting. Yeah, it's pretty profound. That was beautiful work by William Langston in California. So if you were trying to explain this to like a policymaker or somebody who did not have your vocabulary about the brain, how would you put the problem just generally of what um, harm the drugs you're studying cause to the brain? What, what do you see? You see it in the brain, but what do you see it in terms of behavior or competency of the individual who's been using the drugs? Well, to answer that, I need to take a step back. When you asked me about uh, how the rewarding effects of drugs are mediated by the brain, uh, I, I talked about this area called the mesolimbus system or the mesocortical system. And that system is, in fact, that does mediate the rewarding effects of, of drugs as well as lots of other things. And if you take drugs chronically, and initially when you take drugs, you have that rewarding effect and people, many people take drugs and many people use it in a rational, measured way. But if the drug is, if you use the drug at a frequency and a duration and a, an amount that exceeds the brain's ability to compensate for the insult of the drug, because when you do the, when you give the drug, it, the brain is reacting to it, but it reacts pretty quickly. And by virtue of that, it, it goes back to baseline. But if you use it at a higher frequency or more uh, or, or higher doses, what tends to happen is the brain can't compensate as fast enough. And what you have is changes neuroplasticity in the brain that when you get off the drug, you go through withdrawal and you show uh, dependence-like symptoms and things such as that. And that drives drug intake. Uh, and there's a, if you actually look at the number of people that get to that position, it's about 10 to 12% of the population. So the vast majority of individuals are rational, reasoned, measured drug uh, takers. They're users. They have a glass of wine. They, you know, they may, uh, if they smoke, they may smoke a cigarette. They're called chippers. Uh, but if they exceed the brain's capacity to restore itself to baseline, the compens compensation builds up. And then when you get off the drug, you have to have the drug. And that drives substance use disorder, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual of uh, mental disorders, the, the fifth version now classifies those drug-related problems as drug use disorders. And uh, so if I were to talk to someone in policy, uh, I would really try to stress the fact that drug use, uh, I, I, t I don't describe it this way, but others have, is a brain disease. Uh, but I certainly see it as a public health issue and that we have to address it not as a punitive or an incarceration issue, but as a public health issue and address public health initiatives, understanding the biology of the drug. So it's interesting that you indicated uh, it's a brain disease. And um, well, some people think it's a brain disease, but one of the things you indicated, it looks like there are certainly 
pathophysiological changes or harmful effects of drugs on the brain that uh, if it was caused by something else, uh, people would uh, call it an illness, I think. One question I want to ask related to that is, so can you, you talked about diseases that hit or drugs that hit the basal ganglia and basically do permanent damage. Right. Um, can a person's brain recover from addiction of other, on other drugs or are those effects, once a person becomes addicted to drugs, are those brain changes permanent? Well, that's, that's a great question too, Terry. I wish, I wish I could give you a simple answer to this. I wish I knew a simple answer to this. Uh, but the bottom line is the biggest problem with drug abuse and drug addiction is relapse, is that you can get a person off a drug. That's not that hard. You can get them off the drug. And they can go through withdrawal, and they can recover from withdrawal, and they can be absolutely sober. Uh, but when they get around stimuli that have been associated with drug intake, or they get around conditions uh, that are highly associated with stress, uh, these systems and stress uh, actually reactivate this brain area. And uh, it comes through the frontal cortex. It feeds back into the a mesolimbic and mesocortical system, and it and it redrives drug intake. So, so relapse is a critical factor. So, even if it wasn't a permanent brain disease, and and again, some people classify it as that, you still have the tendency to relapse given these associated cues. But let's imagine that you've had all those cues extinguished. You have no other control uh, that impacts drug intake anymore. There are some people who believe in genetic memory for this. Is that while uh, you are no longer on the drug, your system is much more readily to go back to that state if you get back onto drugs. And it's called generational memory. As a matter of fact, one of the leading people in this field, Eric Nessler, uh, actually talks about drug use and drug addiction as memory. It's, it's, it's the same processes that go on when you remember things, uh, that uh, drug memory and memory in general may be mediated by the same process. He talks about uh, a gene called the Delta Foss uh, gene uh, and uh, that, that you really do have changes in gene expression. Uh, gene, I mean, it's the same genes in your brain, but they get expressed differently by virtue of drug history. Well, does that suggest that a, that a genetic therapy might be helpful in the future, or is this early days? And well, I think that's early days. But you know, it's interesting yeah. you ask that question. In that, uh, they I, I just read a paper uh, today uh, that actually was looking at cocaine, and uh, with cocaine, chronic cocaine, it does in fact change dramatically gene expression. And the gene expression that changes is primarily in the mesolimbic system, in the nucleus accumbens. So there are people who are literally spending lots of time right now examining what are referred to as epigenetic changes. Epigenetic changes refer to how your genetic expression gets changed. Everybody, uh, Your genes are your genes are your genes. They're there. Uh, but they, they get expressed very differently depending upon how they get transcribed and how they get translated into protein. And so if you do in fact use a drug chronically, and I think the same thing happens like with Terry's work with high fat diets, I don't doubt at all there are changes in gene expression with that, uh, is that those are now changes that are epigenetic. They actually change the expression of genes and there's work, lots of work going on now asking if those epigenetic changes get translated to your offspring. Yes, uh, I've read and, some of that, yes. Yeah, and, and our lab has done some of that work, and we have shown that chronic exposure 
to, um, uh, to uh, THC, uh, the active ingredient to, in marijuana, uh, changes uh, the tendency for os- offspring who've never had the drug, whose mother, whose dams and fathers have never had the drug, but uh, a, a rat that's been exposed as an adolescent to THC only for about two weeks. You let them mature, then you mate them, then they have offspring. Their offspring are more likely to use heroin. You mentioned adolescence. Mm-hmm. Are there times in life where people are more uh, like subject to addiction or like uh, uh, where they're more likely to abuse drugs? Well, that, that, that's, that's interesting. Uh, yes, there are. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at, there's a number of uh, very interesting studies with adolescents. And adolescents seem to find drugs more rewarding and less aversive than adults. And so you've got the situation prime for drug use in adolescence. Not only do they find the drug more rewarding, they don't seem to respond to the aversive components of drugs. And if you look, there's, there's two major reports. One's called Monitoring in the Future. It comes out every year out of the University of Michigan and National Institute on Drug Abuse that highlights uh, adolescent and 8th grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade uh, drug intake. And 18 to 25 is the prime time for, for drug uh, misuse, if you will, or excess drug use. And the National Survey on Drug Use and Health that looks at 12-year-olds and older also finds high drug intake in adolescents. Uh, th- this is a target. And I think what's important, uh, you asked earlier about uh, policy, is that public health policy needs to know that there are different brains in adolescents versus adults, different neuroplasticity. And those may, in fact, make drug use more likely to be uh, uh, drug intake more likely in adolescents than adults and to have greater uh, likelihood of escalation and transition to abuse in adolescents. Well, that's really important information, I think. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and we, as we as scientists, and, and, and getting to the question that you ask about policy, is that if you believe it is a brain disease, or if you believe that, I, I like to think of it more as talking about a biological mediation of drug effects as a brain disease, but I, I see them can be the same thing, is that if you believe that and you understand certain populations are more vulnerable, that has to be part of educational policy and information for prevention, uh, which is, is a very important issue in relationship to a biological view of the brain is that you have to be able to translate that in the policy of education. Absolutely. So th- this is really fascinating. And I, I think we, we want to continue to go forward and d- talking about this. But before we do, before we move off sort of the general topic of your research, I'm wondering, are there any other, you know, big changes in research on addiction um, that you've seen during your career that you think are important to translate into policy. Uh, yes, I do. And, and uh, both Terry and I are, are, are dinosaurs. <laughs> we're, we're the older generation. <laughs> <laughs> we're the older generation. And it's interesting. Uh, I saw another paper this morning, actually by Eric Nestler and his group, that the entire paper is on changes in genetic, cha- uh, genetic changes with drug use. That's going to be, I think that's the new way of looking is that people are going from initial animal models to looking at the neurochemistry, to looking at the neuroanatomical substrates, to looking at the proteins involved, now looking at the genes involved. And, and Terry knows this paper. It's a paper by Eric Kandel 
Uh, Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for his work on learning and memory and, and sea slugs many years ago, but he's also very active in uh, drug abuse. And his wife, uh, Denise Kandel, is one of the individuals who introduced the concept of the gateway theory of drug use. Uh, but what Kandel has shown is that with chronic cocaine, uh, it, it changes gene expression through a compound called histine deacetylase, and that that makes nic and when you take nicotine, nicotine interacts with that gene to prolong the reinforcing effects of cocaine. So they're not only just looking at at the changes in gene expression with a drug, they're actually looking at how drugs interact to affect the same gene expression. I think that's where it's going to go. I think more and more people are going to get more and more active on looking at changes in gene expression and the molecular basis of uh, drug use. And they'll go away from the kind of the more gross uh, views of neurotransmitters and neuroanatomical substrates to actual mechanism. And that mechanism is going to get down to changes in gene expression. And, and, and once you get there, uh, getting to your earlier question, which was, would you do genetic manipulations? Well, I, I, I don't know whether we're near there, uh, but you do know the work on CRISPR, uh, which is, is, is just really absolutely amazing to me. And if I had to retrain, I would train as a molecular geneticist and, and get into CRISPR. Uh, I, I'm not the least bit, I won't, will not be the least bit surprised if there aren't people right now looking at bacteriophages uh, that, that are, are, are trying to change gene expression uh, for uh, drug abuse by manipulating with CRISPR. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. I was uh, wondering, Tony, I know uh, we've had some discussions uh, about uh, the microbiome. All right. And I think it's a, co a controversial thing, but it seems to be getting a lot of attention in, with respect to various disorders, and drug addiction is, is one of them. Could, could you explain uh, maybe first off what the microbiome is and then uh, what kind of work is going on there? And, and uh, I don't know, do you have some thoughts about um, maybe it's a new direction as well for, for, uh, for drug addiction research? Well, well, absolutely. And, and what, uh, what Terry's referring to here is looking at the gut biome or the biota of the gut and what types of bacteria are, are in the gut and what they might do. And this is really interesting. I, many, many years ago, uh, I was working with uh, uh, primarily working neuroanatomy and neurochemistry, and there were individuals who really did not think that the brain interacted with the uh, immune system or the stress system. It's, it's astounding how it hasn't been that long ago that people didn't think that the brain had much communication uh, with, with even immune system. They, they're highly integrated. And people haven't thought that the brain did anything with the gut very much other than the vagus. Uh, and it's interesting that people are now saying that the, the gut biome, the, the, the kind of uh, consistency of the gut with bacterial environment, plays dramatic effects on the brain. And the brain affects the gut biome as well. And so what, what people have been looking at is, can you change the gut biome? Can you change the, the bacterial composition of the gut and impact behavior? And one thing that I'm doing in a collaboration with a colleague at University of Michigan, Don Kuhn, uh, who's also working with a collaboration at the Medical University of Southern, uh, uh, South Carolina, uh, he's looking at uh, drug addiction. And he's asking whether or not animals that are uh, using drugs and escalating in drug intake, which you would classify as an animal model of addiction, 
what does their gut biome look like to a naive animal? And there are big differences between the gut biome of an addicted animal and a non-addicted animal. Now, as Terry knows, that could be due to lots of effects, including just a drug itself. Uh, but people are now trying to do this in a translational way. Uh, if you can change the pathological gut biome, whatever that bacterial content is, with that of one that is, does not have that gut biome, can you reverse the effects of the addicted uh, animal? In this case, can you get them no longer interested in the drug? And what, what seems to be the answer to that? Does, does it well, work? I think I think it's just starting. Uh, we're we are working with Don uh, with cocaine self-administration. His, he has a colleague at uh, MUSC doing it with heroin, and we'll see. Uh, but they uh, he, Don is a, uh, a researcher at the Veterans Administration Hospital in in Michigan, outside of Detroit, uh, and um, he's doing this with PTSD. And there are data in veterans with PTSD that uh, the gut biome is completely different than individuals without PTSD. And they have reversed some of the PTSD effects by uh, gut biome transformation, uh, transplantation. Wow. That is very, that's a big wow. Uh, that's very interesting stuff. And we'll see. And it's, it's not without controversy. Uh, but the fact is, it, uh, there's more and more data substantiating that animal, you can reverse effects by shifting the gut biome. What kinds of policies would help with this amazing research? Like what, what if you were able to talk to policymakers so that more of this research could happen and you could make more, discover more knowledge more quickly, what, what would you want or need? I actually chatted with Terry about this yesterday. He and I were just uh, chatting late in the afternoon. Uh, we're, we're in a fortunate position being in Washington, D.C., in that we see the policymakers and, and we, we do interact with them. And, and you know, Terry's on many grant panels and uh, I happen to be married to a policymaker. <laughs> so so we, we, by, by definition, we, we talk to these individuals. Unfortunately, who we talk to primarily have the same viewpoint that we have and that uh, we talk to people at NIDA and we talk to people at NIH and they're highly research-based and they're evidence-based individuals as well. And so, that, that, you know, sometimes we're, we're preaching to the choir and they're preaching to the choir. My biggest issue with policymakers and, and what I would say has to do through something which I like to think about looking through different lenses. The lens that I look through is a biological lens or a behavioral lens, which is the same lens that Terry looks through. Uh, but we tend to ignore, or not ignore, but not even know about the social, economic, political, cultural, racial, ethnic issues that surround drug use. And so I, I, what I would try to do when I talk to a policymaker, if I could get someone to to listen to me about what I thought would be interesting is to have a public health focus that understands there is a biology to drug use. And that biology to drug use is not only in the initial intake of the drug, the initial maintenance of drug taking, but the escalation of drug taking, that there is a biological substrate for that. There's a mediator and the, the brain is highly involved in that. And that that has to be kind of the central understanding that you're you're not talking about a deficit in a personality or a moral judgment on on um, on the use of the drug. Uh, there's so much evidence of genetic basis for drug use. 
there's, there's, I mean, it's a huge animal literature and even a human literature that there may be people predisposed to either stress or drug intake or differential sensitivity uh, to drugs in general. Uh, if they can understand there's a biological basis, then we can move out or around that biological basis and initiate public health, uh, have public health initiatives that assume a biological, biological basis. And it's not just a punitive incarceration uh, focus on drug use. That has never worked. It didn't work in the 1900s. It's not working now. Uh, and combined with the fact that if you understand some of the biology of, of drug intake, you can shape um, you can shape prevention and treatment strategies. So that's what I would try to sell. I, I'll give you just an example. I mentioned Nora Volkoff, who is the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And she has an, she's had a number of talks where she talks about that we have to not see drug use as a crime, but see drug use as a, um, as, as she talks about a disease, but as a biological uh, mediated phenomenon. And if, you, and if you understand that, you can actually come up with new therapies. You can come up with new uh, drug interventions that, that, that if you understand literally where they work, you can create drugs. You can create catalytic compounds that break the drug apart. You can come up with uh, vaccines for drugs, and that's being done right now. Uh, you can come up with drugs that uh, reduce relapse tendencies because you know where they're working in the brain. But you also can do things like uh, teach self, self-efficacies, teach self-regulation, teach impulse control, teach social skills that are all compromised and deteriorated by chronic drug use. And so a biological perspective doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a biological intervention. You can and you should, but you can also have social and behavioral interventions as well. And those, if, but, but you have to have a biological framework to generate those new interventions. I don't know, I, that was long-winded, uh, but, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that having that biological framework gives you so much more flexibility. I teach a class, uh, which is basically drugs in America, and I ask students about their take on drugs, and most of them believe that there's probably some character flaw, and their, their Uncle Joe is a nice guy, but he's got this kind of he can't control himself, and he uses heroin. Uh, but if you ask them, well, what does that tell you and how you treat it? They have no answer. Uh, just saying someone has a personality uh, problem or an impulse control or a deficit doesn't give you any insight how to treat that issue. If you have a framework, like a biological framework, it does give you direction and avenues to go down to treat and, and prevent. So I have a question. It sounds like what you're saying is there's a big obstacle to uh, preventing and treating um, drug disorders and has to do with perhaps the public's perception of the cause of them. Uh, I, I uh, just uh, yesterday saw a paper where 80% of the population, the public think that obesity is a problem of the individual. Yes. It's a, a willpower problem. And then it made me think of, if you remember the, the slogan, just say no. Right. And that was a way of trying to deal with drugs. Do you think that those percentages are still kind of around in the population for drugs? Do you think just say no is what some people think would be a effective uh, way of trying to deal with drugs? Not only would they think it was an effective way, Terry, they think it's already been proven that it's an effective way. Uh, they'll show you data 
uh, they'll they'll show the parallel between decreases. I started at American University in 1976. And when I got here, drug use was on the incline and was dramatically going up. I think at that time, 60% of uh, high school students had tried marijuana at least once. I think it was 59% or something like that. And then it started coming down. And when Nancy Reagan uh, argued, just say no, uh, it was literally while it was already going down. It was going down before Just Say No initiative came out. But people will say, just look at the data and you'll see that drugs were changing when Nancy Reagan said Just Say No. There's very little evidence that Just no, Say No gets you anywhere. Uh, the biggest def- biggest change in drug use in teenagers, in 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, was perceived risk and disapproval. Uh, and that perceived risk uh, occurred by virtue of of uh, education and uh, you know word of mouth and uh, uh, media that were promoting uh, the problems with drug use. Um, and right now, one of the biggest predictors of drug use, uh, the major predictor of drug use in kids, is what their peers are doing. And that their peers see drugs as safe and fine. They see drugs as safe and fine. If their peers see drugs as dangerous and perceived as negative, they perceive them as negative. We have to educate without saying, just say no. And we have to educate without just saying it's going to kill you. You just have to educate and let people know what the consequences of drug intake are, what rational drug intake might be, and uh, actually try to initiate strategies that students can say, uh, get impulse control and work in different arenas so that drugs are not the uh, initial option that they have. That makes tons of sense. So just to touch on this, um, you know, hugely controversial topic, uh, from your perspective as a researcher, what do you think about these drug legalization initiatives and especially the decriminalization of marijuana, increasing availability of marijuana? Well, I I kind of see these on a continuum. On the far left of the continuum is prohibition, and uh, that has never been very effective for certainly some of the major drugs used in the U.S., whether that be alcohol or nicotine, I mean, in in relationship to restriction to children. Uh, The other side is legalization. And I I just don't see legalization occurring very, very rapidly for for all drugs. Um, Legalization for marijuana is interesting. Right now, there's 33 states that have a medical marijuana uh, initiative, and there's 18 states that have legal recreational marijuana. A report came out last week that showed that uh, in the states that have shown that have legal marijuana, recreational marijuana, uh, there's the the increase in use is has been pretty limited. It has not been an increase. It was went from 11 percent before um, legalization to 15 percent with legalization. So it hasn't been uh, there hasn't been a huge increase uh, as yet. Uh, but most individuals that I know, uh, especially in the drug abuse field, uh, promote harm reduction more than legalization and prohibition. And harm reduction is saying take the strategy of looking at each individual drug as a drug and making decisions about that drug as opposed to a general policy of mass prohibition or mass legalization. I don't think you're going to see many individuals promoting legalization of heroin or cocaine or amphetamine or these synthetic compounds. Uh, But for compounds like alcohol, 
the legalization, because it is legal, uh, and it was actually legal during prohibition. It was it was illegal to sell it, but you could certainly have it, and you could actually do self brewing at your home. Uh, but uh, for some drugs like alcohol and like nicotine, it has to be very effective social constraints on the use. For example, I really like the idea that alcohol purchasing has to be face-to-face, and nicotine per cigarette uh, purchasing has to be face-to-face. Uh, by virtue of that, you can limit the use by minors, uh, and you can limit the overuse of it. Uh, think of uh, vaping. Uh, vaping was a harm reduction strategy. Uh, many of the people who, were right, who wrote in the 1990s and the early 2000s were looking for a nicotine delivery device that they could give to individuals that could get them away from combustible uh, nicotine, because that's where the tars are and that's where the carcinogens are. And so they, they said vaping might be a great idea. And they're not saying that anymore, as, as vaping's got its own subset of problems. And in the last Monitoring the Future uh, uh, in, uh, survey results that came out earlier this year, uh, vaping has gone down dramatically in 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, dramatically. And it's being now perceived as being dangerous. Very interesting and, and fantastic news. Yeah, but, but I think uh, we have uh, to apply harm reduction across the board. For example, the easiest harm reduction strategy for heroin is needle exchange uh, and, uh, and, and the promotion of condoms in, for, for HIV transmission. And for cigarettes, uh, a, a harm reduction was, was getting rid of vending machines. Terry, you and I remember when you could go buy cigarettes and vending machines. Uh, that that went out in I think 2010, uh, but those are all harm reduction strategies aimed at specific drugs. So Tony, uh, we're yeah we're uh, we're getting uh, short on time, but I know you're also doing some interesting work uh, looking at interactions of drugs with HIV. Um, would you want to just uh, describe a little bit of that for us as well? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, th- thanks for asking about that. Um, HIV and drug use look to be in tandem. Uh, If you look at the percent of individuals that have tested positive for HIV, some estimates, I've seen estimates up as 80%, but most people I think talk about 50 or so percent are also using drugs and have substance use disorders. And almost everybody talks about the direction between those two uh, phenomenon of drugs and HIV as drugs to HIV, is that individuals who use drugs uh, are, are involved in risky behavior to begin with, uh, with using drugs and, and illegal activities typically, and they use and, and they share needles, or they have unprotected sex. And by virtue of needle sharing and risky behaviors in general, uh, is that you are more likely to acquire HIV and you're more likely to progress HIV. And so that direction, I think, is well established. We're looking at the other direction. We're asking, does HIV impact the likelihood of using drugs? Now, given that many people who are are using drugs are also HIV positive, we know that that relationship exists. But we're asking, if you have HIV, are you more likely to transition to escalated drug intake? And there are a number of areas in the brain that are impacted by HIV, and uh, there are a number of issues associated with HIV which are cognitive in in nature. There's actually a pathology called HAND, H-A-N-D, for HIV-associated neurocognitive deficits. Uh, And individuals, uh, and even individuals who are taking antiretroviral medication, 
and they have st they have suppressed the replication of the virus, and they're they're showing less effects of the virus, still have these uh, neurocognitive deficits. And if you have these neurocognitive deficits, they happen to be in areas of the brain, frontal cortex. They also have a motivational symptoms in the in the uh, mental uh, the mesolimbic system. Those are the same systems that are affected with chronic drug use. And so our question, I'm working with Alex uh, Zestos on this, who's a chemist in our department, in our university, is we're asking if the cognitive changes associated with HIV, which are due to brain regions that are also associated with chronic drug use, are those individuals going to be more likely, if they take a drug, to escalate faster because they already have the neurocognitive deficits that may make it difficult in impulse control. And one interesting tidbit about that, which is very exciting and very difficult to, uh, uh, to work with, is that individuals with HIV are often in, in terrible pain. And the best way to treat pain, at least by some indices, is prescription opiates. And so we're really worried about opiate addiction escalating in individuals with HIV because of these neurocognitive deficits, they go for treatment and they're prescribed opioids. And those opioids, are, more, are they more or less likely? I think they'll be going to be more likely to escalate drug intake and become involved in heroin epidemic and the opioid epidemic. So that's what we're playing with. We're looking at the neurochemistry involved. We're looking at the neuroanatomical changes like changes in dendritic spines in the frontal cortex. And we're looking at also drug escalation in an animal model. An animal model we're looking at is called eco-HIV. Uh, those animals uh, look like uh, a human on antiretroviral medication. The, the, the virus is not replicating, but it's hidden in macrophages and, and uh, glial cells in the brain. And under stress, they do replicate. They come out. And so we're looking at this, into this specific population of animals. Sounds like a very interesting work. I wish you um, a lot of success with, with that project. Oh, I think I'm excited about yeah. it. It's, it's, it's going to be very interesting. Sounds very important. So let me ask one last question before we're, we're going to have to wrap up. And that's, in addition to drugs, there's many other substances like Terry's work on food and sugar and fat and also activities like gambling, video gaming, exercise shopping that have been labeled as addictive. And do you agree with those characterizations? Well, I, I think right now uh, some of that's anecdotal. And some of it's based in animal research where you can see parallels in brain systems involved in those. There's no doubt that uh, the, the system that, that I'm playing with primarily, uh, you, you can see that in animals. Uh, you can see those with other drugs as well as other activities like high-fat diets. Terry and I are working with the high-fat diet model, Terry's model, on hippocampal modulation, which is involved in memory and, and involved in control as well. Uh, and I think you see that in, in both humans and animals. But I think right now, uh, the work that's talking about gambling addiction, shopping addiction, uh, those are not classified as uh, use disorders yet. Uh, some of them are. In point of fact, uh, gambling is looked at. But there was work by Kenneth Bloom some years ago that looked at uh, the dopamine 2, the D2 uh, receptor gene uh, that, that, is mis that is mutated in alcoholism. Uh, type 2 alcoholics have a change in the D2 uh, receptor gene. 
that makes them less sensitive to dopamine, which means they might be self-medicating with alcohol. And interesting, you see those same uh, D2 receptor uh, mutations in individuals who gamble, individuals who are obese, individuals who are uh, who display sexual addictions, if you will. And if you actually look, uh, the the numbers are strikingly similar in terms of the percent that have that mutation versus populations that don't show those pathologies. Uh, they don't show that mutation. So there's certainly evidence that there may be some involvement that are parallel. Uh, But if I can have two more minutes, I'll tell you about something that we need to be aware of in addition to that. And we have to realize that we're talking about drugs of abuse, but other drugs do the same thing to the brain. Uh, Drugs, psychopharmacotherapeutic drugs like antipsychotics, antidepressants, uh, anti-manic drugs, they also produce cellular compensation just like cocaine, heroin, and and alcohol. They're doing it in the different parts of the brain. We have to think of the body as being involved in homeostasis, is that its its major role is to keep the body in an even keel. And if you you disrupt it by cocaine, it will fight back. If you disrupt it by uh, Prozac, it will fight back. And there's a lot of individuals now who are saying we should be, we should take our molecular memory analysis of drugs of abuse also to, to drugs that are used in therapy uh, and pharmacotherapy because we're seeing an increase in ADHD. We're seeing an increase in children with bipolar and manic disease. We're seeing an increase in anxiety uh, uh, that, that basically are occurring likely because individuals are being over-prescribed these same medications chronically. None of them are supposed to be prescribed chronically. As a matter of fact, the anti-anxiety medication is usually talked about two weeks and people take them for decades. And so this public health uh, initiative in relationship to behavioral compensation needs to be applied to drugs in general and other pathologies in general. Well, that sounds like something very important for the public to know. And I had never heard any, any of that. So yeah, it, it's wow. it's very yeah. very interesting. There, there's a wonderful book which I encourage your listeners to look read. It's called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, and it's uh, it's pretty profound stuff. Well, thank you so much. This is fascinating for our listeners, and we could, I can tell, we could talk to you all day and just learn more and more. Terry, any last questions before we wrap up? No, I uh, I appreciate very much, Tony. I thought it was really uh, informative and interesting uh, discussion we had today. So uh, thank you very much for participating in our podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. And it's nice to, to chat with you, both of you. And I appreciate the questions that you had. Thanks. Thank you. We hope to get you back. I, right. I'm happy to do it. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about. Mm-hmm.